Come to the end of the fourth servant psalm of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, is the verse that we'll consider this morning. I'm going to read from verse 10 down to verse 12, a little bit of context. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for, for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear the iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Just on the heels of Advent season and the day after Christmas day, we come to the end of this fourth servant psalm of Isaiah. A few years ago, I don't remember what year it was, I preached a series of Advent sermons around the theme of the broken road of redemption. And that idea was based off of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 4, where it says, Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Now, implied in this pronouncement of comfort is that things are not right in the world. This, this world, as we well know, does, does, not, does not dwell in perfect peace or comfort or safety. There is no such thing in this life as those things for most people, this life is very hard, and, and yet I think there's more to it than that, just life is hard and sin is abundant. I think there is, in this description of valleys and crooked ways and broken ways, especially a description of how sinners relate to a holy God. There is a brokenness in our relation to God. But this is a pronouncement of comfort, because every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill will be made low, and the uneven ground will become level, rough places will be plain. In other words, this is a pronouncement that God will set things right. How does he do this? Well, the great theme of the fourth servant psalm centers around the answer to that question. And when we see it, we see the inhumane, substitutionary suffering of God's servant. And we also see his exaltation. God does not smooth out rough places or flatten hills or exalt valleys which have been corrupted by sin merely by looking the other way. God is just. These things that are out of sorts, these things that are broken in the world, these things that are not right with God's creation are not right because of sin. And for God to be just and for him to smooth out those rough places, there has to be an answer for sin. And that answer has come in this fourth servant psalm. The comfort that Isaiah pronounces on God's people in chapter 40 here is revealed to come by way of his righteous servant. 
It didn't come by him waving a magic wand and making all of those things right. It came through the servant going through those broken places himself. In fact, becoming them. He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we in him might become the righteousness of God. The antidote for sin, the antidote for the problems of sin and what it creates in this life is God's justice upon it. And he met this mercifully in our place by way of his servant, Jesus Christ. We sing the lines at Christmas that Jesus was Lord at thy birth. I think Elizabeth was the first person in the New Testament to explicitly call Jesus Lord. Luke 1.43, she says this, And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And we're very aware that John was was to prepare the way of the Lord, that is, John the Baptist, the son of Elizabeth. And we are aware that the angels, when they came announcing to the shepherds in the field the glory of the one, the child that was to be born, they said this about him, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so rightly we sing, he was Lord at his birth. But in our servant psalm, he doesn't appear much like a Lord, does he? This servant psalm begins with exaltation in verse 13 of chapter 52, but the very next verse describes somebody who is inhumane in his suffering. And if Inhuman, I should say, in his suffering. He didn't even appear to be human. I'm reading a couple books on World War II, and I've been reading them for a long time. I'm almost done with one of them. But when I hear the description of the sort of suffering that those soldiers experienced, what they went through, what they saw... And the descriptions that they give, and they're awful descriptions. We understand that what we read here about Jesus being marred more than any man. Alive, but, but appearing to be dead even as he lives. So disfigured, so marred that he didn't look to be human. We understand that when we come to this fourth servant psalm, that we don't look at someone who appears to be in control of anything. What is he in control of? How could he be in control and suffer in this way? And yet when we come to the end of the psalm in chapter 53, verses 10 through 12, we see exactly that he did the will of the Lord in suffering in this way. And in fact, it pleased him. He was satisfied by what he saw as a result of his suffering. What was that satisfaction? I argued in verse 10 that it was the satisfaction of seeing the children, his children, that he came to save. Jesus understood when he came, he came to save his people from their sin. And this is the way that broken roads and rough places are made plain, is that Jesus, the servant of God, came to smooth them out by being broken by walking in those rough places by putting himself between God and man becoming our mediator 
This is the means of our comfort. This is the means of our salvation. First of all, in verse 12, we see the servant's spoiler. Verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. This terminology regards what a soldier deserves, a, a successful soldier deserves as a result of his val valor. Valor is the word. Therefore begins this verse, and is the result of the will of the Lord prospering his hands. This goes back to verses 10 and 11 to describe, to, to pull from there that he's successful, that he did the will of the Lord, and the will of the Lord prospered in his hand. Therefore, what follows comes as a result of his success. What is due to the servant comes now in verse 12. But remember this, the servant has died and has already been buried. So what we see here is something of an implication. A lot of people ask the question, where are the promises? We see many explicit promises in the Old Testament regarding the death of Christ. We see them, they're, they're, they're rehearsed for us in the New Testament. We see them in the Old. Where are the promises of his resurrection? And in this text, are implied promises of his resurrection. We see here that this servant didn't just suffer, he suffered unto death. He was buried, remember? With the wicked and with the rich in his death. He was buried, but now he's, there's something of a reward given to him. Well, how does that reward come to the one who is dead? It comes to the one who is dead and now lives. So we see in this language implications of the resurrection of Christ. We've already understood in verse 10 that the, the phrase that God will prolong his days regards the resurrection of his servant. But now we see that the servant in his resurrection is being re rewarded for his obedience to the will of God. He doesn't just suffer. He doesn't just come and he's not just humble. He's not just providing something for others. He himself is esteemed for what he has done. And all this implies that he would rise again, and certainly we understand that the New Testament describes Jesus in the resurrection as Lord of all. When Jesus is raised from the dead, he is raised as the one who is the conqueror. Here's where we get that soldier idea in verse 12. He is the conqueror of sin. He is the conqueror of our enemies. As we read in Colossians 1, he has dominion over all things. And we need to know that now. Nothing is happening right now in this world outside of Christ's dominion. Hebrews chapter 12 says all things are under his feet now. It doesn't appear like it. Now, you're, you're sitting there and you're saying, man, things do not appear to be under the feet of Jesus as Lord. That's what Hebrews says. So you're in, good, you're in good company to notice that. And yet they are. They are all under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we get to this reward in verse 12, I admit to you, I always come to this verse 
and I don't know if I should say this, but I always feel a sort of insufficiency in it. In the, in the words. What does it say? What is his reward? Verse 12, look at this. I will divide him a portion with the many. What does that mean? That means that he is given the portion one of the many. What gets me when I read that is it doesn't seem that the servant is standing out among the many. He, he's sort of just one of them, one of the many here. As if there's a whole host of soldiers that are successful, he's one of them, and so he has the portion of the many. The next phrase is a little better. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Now that can be taken that he is given the spoil. He divides them among the strong. But most take it as he is one of the strong here. So both the first and the second phrase, many are, take that to mean he is one of the many and one of the strong. Perhaps he's stronger than the rest, but the language could be taken as just one of the strong. Now, this is evidently a very possible translation, and as we've seen in Isaiah 53, this, I, let me say this to you, and this is sort of a parenthesis to today's text. Isaiah 53 could not be understood apart from Christ's coming. Apart from his coming, his life, and his death, I don't think this is a, you cannot understand this text. Many Jewish people today don't come to this text at all. And, and, some say that's because of the Christian message that Christ fulfills this, which he absolutely does, and it only can refer to him. And it only is understandable, is my point, in light of Christ's fulfillment of it. But that is to say the language is difficult to translate. Now, Isaiah, if you know anything about the Hebrew, if you've studied Isaiah, he is a master of Hebrew. It's not as if he doesn't know what he's saying. But he is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write, and he wrote what he was inspired to write. And I believe there is a certain quality about the language in Isaiah 53 that at once has a broad possibility of translation for this purpose. Because what we are reading and what we are understanding is altogether too great for us. It, there is something that when I come to this text, I believe that God means it to say what it says to keep us humble. To keep us going, you're greater than I understand here. What we understand is great, but you're greater even than it. King James translates this, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. Great can mean many. Many can mean great. Great meaning great as in someone who is great. Great can also mean many as in a great host of people. So that word can be translated either way. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Very similar to the ESV there. The NASB, the 77 edition, says this, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong. There you get the idea of a soldier there. NIV says, therefore, I will give him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. And if all these are fine, as it were, they all agree, uh, so to speak, with one another, 
uh, in summary, but they're all summed up with what the paraphrase, the New Living Translation says, I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier. That's the point of this in some ways. And I don't like to to just read different translations, but the reason why I read these translations is to say they're all very much alike. And yet I don't think, I don't think they get really to what Isaiah seems, and and let me say this, the analogy of scripture seems to be teaching us about the servant. When we read this servant psalm, and we come, say, if you go back to verse 13 of chapter 52, what do we see about the servant? We see three times he's exalted in that verse. Now that three times is no small deal. In the Hebrew, that means he is exalted to the superlative degree. As far as I know, only God himself is ever exalted in Scripture to the superlative degree. When we see Isaiah chapter 6, that God is holy, 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 that is regarding that only God is holy in that sense. Now, when we see that the servant is exalted to the superlative degree, and then we come to chapter 53, verse 12, which is the end of all of this, and we see that he's just one of the many, you can see why the analogy just doesn't seem right. Because he's not merely one of the many in his exaltation. Now, oftentimes, as I understand it, this is translated as one of the many because of his humility. He does become one of the many in his humility. He becomes us. He lowers himself to our estate. In Christ's humility, he likens himself to us in every way. He lowers himself to our sinful estate. Not that he sinned, but he brings our sins upon himself. Our sins are reckoned as his on the cross. He bears them in our place, but not in his exaltation does Scripture describe him as being equal with us. So the analogy of Scripture seems to call for something more than just one of the many. Now, as I was studying this, one thing we cannot do when we come to Scripture is just want it to say what we want it to say. You do that, and you will wind up in heresy. You'll wind up in unbelief. You'll wind up with an abomination of doctrine and theology. But may I say I was pleasantly surprised when I started studying this to see that there is a valid, and in fact a historic translation, a valid translation of the Hebrew that doesn't leave Christ as one of the many. This goes all the way back to Luther and prior to Luther in the German Bible. Herman Ritterboss, many other Hebrew scholars have argued for this translation. More recently, Alec Mature has argued that this is the only possible translation based on the analogy of the entire psalm. You see, oftentimes the translations of hard Hebrew comes down to context. What does the context say about this servant? Well, if you read from verses 10 through 12, you see that we are 
we are expecting that when we come to verse 12, this servant is exalted uniquely. Now, Alec Mentir, which I, I just give you this summary because I'm not going to burden you with all of the Hebrew, which I don't even quite understand myself. He, he translates this verse, the beginning of this verse, this way. I will apportion out to him the many. I will apportion out to him the many. In other words, I will give him the reward of his suffering. And the mighty ones he will apportion as spoil. Those who are mighty are not as mighty as him. Now, as I understand it, we are not adding to the Hebrew by seeing this translation here. This is very permissible by the Hebrew, but even more so, the context seems to demand this translation. What did he die for? What did he come to die for? To save his people. Did he? Did he fail of that purpose? God forbid. Here this verse says, if we understand it this way, that God will give him the reward of his suffering, which is the many that he came to ransom. When Jesus laid down his life, he says he came to do it, not to be, this is very interesting, the the, the parallelism is here, isn't it? I came not to be served, but to serve. Here we are in this suffering servant. And to give my life a ransom for many. Now, what does a ransom mean? It's a purchasing language. It's a redemptive language. It's like he himself was a commodity that he traded For his people. You think he gave himself up. The worth and the value of the son of God. And not receive the reward of what he gave. No. The the prophet is saying. He will receive the reward of his suffering. The father who gave him. The servant. Will give him the reward. Namely those for whom he died. Is that you? Is that you? You sit here this morning. Some of us have altogether a too vague notion of the redemption, that the price that was paid for you. Christ died for you. And your faith in him have demonstrated that the Father has given him to you. And this is the language that Jesus speaks of. John chapter 6, isn't it? Verse 37. I came to save whom the Father has given me. Jesus says, let me, let, me, let me give that to you exactly as Jesus says it. All that the Father gives me will come to me. That's the reward of his suffering. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, 
but the will of him who sent me. This is the will that prospered in the hands of the servant, verse 10. Do you understand? And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all who has given me, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That is God accomplishing his will through his servant and the servant receiving the reward of his suffering, which is the people he came to save that were given to him by the Father. Mm. Behold, my servant will prosper. He didn't come to make salvation merely available. He came to save you. And he did it. This is the Lord at his birth. This is the triumphant soldier. He did what the Father sent him to do to save us. We're the sinners. We're the sheep that went astray. And the mighty ones he will apportion as the spoil. That puts everybody on their knees in our rightful place before him. What does it say about the exaltation of Christ at the beginning of this hymn, this psalm? It says that he's thrice exalted. It says in verse 15 that the kings shut their mouths because of him. They, they see him and they are humbled. Verse 15 of chapter 52. How about Philippians 2, 8 through 11? What does it say of this servant there? Because of his willingness to obey, because he did obey. What does it say? And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is Equal with the many. No. The name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this perfectly accords with our text and with the whole analogy of Scripture. This accords with everything that we believe about Christ. Jesus was Lord at his birth. But his lordship was confirmed in and through his suffering for us. He was Lord, get this, while he suffered. This is why anybody who is great in this life must humble themselves. You think you're great. You must humble yourself before God and receive this Lord and bow the knee to this Savior. You know, I said that the comfort of God's people was to make the rough places plain, to bring down the hills, to lift up the valleys. You know what it says is the great comfort at the end of that? Behold our God. You see, Jesus was sent so that sinners 
have a view of God, a saving vision of God. You know, when I read those rough places and all that stuff, we tend to get all out of sorts because of sin and because of the world and the environment we live in. And we look out at all those things and pretty soon we cannot see God because all of these things, sins and the weights of sins and everything, our guilt and the shame of it all and all of the terrible things that are going on are all that we see. Jesus came to flatten them out so that we could behold God so that we could see God, so that we could have him be our God. And he accomplished it. He accomplished it. I hope you have that vision of God this morning. Secondly and finally, this will be quick, the servant savior. I skipped out, I skipped a few verses there that I shouldn't have, or a a few phrases. It says here, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. That just goes back to him accomplishing the will of the Lord. But I want us to see that that's sandwiched here. That's how we accomplish the will of the Lord with his being poured out unto death. That's why he deserves the reward of his suffering. But secondly, the servant savior Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Our Lord's atoning work is finished. It was finished there on the cross where he became sin for us. But his work of intercession is eternal. Jesus means, the name means God is salvation. And what a perfect name for the one who saves us. Not just now, not just unto the day that we die, but unto the uttermost, the scripture says. Because he ever lives to make intercession for us. If you have Christ this morning, you have everything. The catechism says that, in fact, our only hope in life and death is not our financial stability, it's not our health, it's not the well-being of our children, it's not the estate of our marriage, it's not the estate of my own integrity, courage, character. It's Christ. He's our hope in life and in death. But did you hear that his work is finished? And he ever lives to make intercession. This is an unfailing hope then, is what we end this hymn with, this psalm with. This is is a psalm, a servant that does not fail. He keeps succeeding for eternity. Riches can corrupt. Poverty can also lead to severe temptations. Christ will not fail. Our hope is certain when it rests on him. Our future, which is never stable in this life, when it's fixed on things of this life, in him is firm and unshakable. 
It's by the power of his endless life that we live and never despair, says the author to the Hebrew. He is our high priest forever. Nothing else will do for us. We have been made for God. And we are restless, as Augustine said, until we find our rest in him. Have you found your rest in Christ? You know, we sing all the songs. We, we can go through all the motions of the season. We can have the, the tree is meaningless in some ways. We can have all the beauty in the pageant tree. Do you have Christ? If you do, you have hope. You have comfort. You have God. You have peace with God. No one else is sufficient because God alone is salvation, and that comes through his servant who suffered in our place. He rose again and is exalted above all, whose ongoing intercession, that is, he speaks on our behalf. As a mediator between us and the Father, he is the means that the Father looks on us and declares us righteous, and he is the means where we can come to the Father through him. He is salvation for us. He will not fail to save those from whom he died. And I want to end by just reading Revelation 5. It's my, maybe my, I don't know what my favorite text is. I said it was Isaiah 40 at the beginning of Advent. Now I'm saying maybe it's this, maybe it is. Turn to Revelation 5. I love this. We see this picture of our redemption and the exaltation of the Father and the Son. And I believe even the Holy Spirit is implied in all of this. I'm just going to read it without comment. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to your God, to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wisdom and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and every under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. <laughs> 